Well, good morning. If we haven't met before, I'm Rob Jacobson. I'm so glad you're here. If we have met before, then you know the drill. I'm still Rob, and I'm still glad you're here. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 6, if you have your Bible and you want to follow along. Galatians chapter 6, as we conclude this Breaking Free teaching series. Brothers and sisters, If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. If any one of you thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one of you should test your own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load." Nevertheless, the one who receives instructions in the word should share in all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their sinful nature will harvest death and decay from, those who, from that sinful nature. But those who live by the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit." Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of God, and Lord, I pray that the words from my mouth, the meditations from my heart, God, would not only be pleasing to you, but would be helpful in the way that we live. So let us hear your word, and God, may it change our lives by your spirit. Amen. Well, this week was a lot of ups and downs. I don't know if you watch the news. It usually seems like there's a lot of ups and downs, but uh, I saw on the news that Wilmer, Minnesota became one of the few cities in the world that has the one, or maybe became a city that has one of the largest all-access parks This playground was built in less than two weeks by volunteers. Nearly a million dollars took a year of planning, but now has access and equipment so that children of all development abilities can um, play at a playground. One of my favorite things that they showed was this thing called the Liberty Swing. The Liberty Swing has this ramp, so it allows someone in a motorized wheelchair to get up in a swing and do what lots of kids do in their childhood. It's really beautiful, beautiful picture. Um, but then last Sunday, uh, and sorry, before we leave the Liberty Swing, I, I think it's pretty cool that liberty and freedom mean the same things, so that this child would be free to swing on this swing set. And then at the other end of the spectrum is Manchester in England, where concertgoers were free to, to go to this concert, but someone decided that they were free to wreak destruction on the same uh, concertgoers. God have mercy. We, we just have no idea what is good and what is evil. So today, as we conclude, I, I want us to ponder what it means to have freedom in Christ what it means, and, and maybe what it requires. 
There was a boy named William Crockett. He's a former student with autism, and he wrote a poem about the freedom that he found in a supportive learning environment. He called it a people place. And he said, if this is not a place where tears are understood, then where do I go to cry? And if this is not a place where my spirit can take wing, then where do I go to fly? And if this is not a place where my prison is unlocked, where do I go for the key? And if this is not a place where I can whisper my fears, then where do I go to be free? And if this is not a place where you'll accept me as me, then where can I go to just be? If this is not a place where I'll learn and grow, where can I find the true me? I, I believe that freedom in Christ changes our lives. It actually transforms our lives. But if you would have told me that before I believed in Christ, I wouldn't have believed it. Even after I believed in Christ, I really didn't believe it until I met Christ and actually started to see him change my life. And I think that's part of what freedom actually means. In our culture, we like to think that freedom means options. You know, I have 10,000, actually I probably have 500,000 song options if I just click a couple buttons. Um, I probably, if I wanted to pay for it, have access to at least 500 channels on TV, maybe 1,000 channels on TV, even though I can't find anything to watch. But uh, freedom could mean any of those things. It could also mean democracy, could mean free will, could mean liberty and justice for all. Sometimes I think freedom means that we are free to pursue whatever we want. And yet, the Bible describes this idea that I'm free to do whatever I want as sin. And following our heart is not freedom, especially when our heart is easily controlled, often twisted, and sometimes, I think I could say, corrupt. So if the Bible story is true, then that would mean that it's describing reality, like describing the way things are. So to understand the verses we read in Galatians, we really need to understand the Bible story. So hopefully in just a couple minutes, we'll do a quick review. If it's true, then there is this supreme being at the beginning who is powerful enough to speak words and make them be life. And, there, and this being called light out of darkness... This being formed beauty out of formlessness and this being created goodness or order out of chaos. If the Bible story is true, then, then the pinnacle moment in all of this that was good was the creation of humans. That humans were made in God's image, commissioned to rule the earth and actually cultivate potential not only from the earth but also from each other. And so at the beginning, we see this partnership with God and humans, that there's a freedom there to eat from all of these different fruits. There's a freedom to interact with God, to walk with him in the cool of the day, the freedom to um, 
well, it's a little bit weird, especially if you're a kid. It's a little weird to hear like that Adam and Eve were naked. So I decided to grab a picture from um, the Lego world. So there's Adam and Eve. And, but really what it means is that there's nothing between them. There's nothing they have to cover up. There's no lies. There's no hurt. There's no evil. But God can't force this partnership because then it wouldn't be good. So he has to offer them freedom to not choose it. So if you know the story, the freedom to choose or not choose is represented by a tree. Anybody remember what the tree is called? It's a big fancy name. Well, almost. You got most of it right. You forgot two words. Oh, I heard it. The knowledge, the tree of the knowledge. It's all right, you're still smart here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But think about what that means. If they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are choosing to know and therefore define what they think is good and what they think is evil. I mean, essentially, the tree, the choice was, do I want to let God be God or do I want to be God? Do I want to let God define what is good and what is evil or do I want to define what is good and what is evil? And think about the way that these stories go after this. After Adam and Eve are all smiles, after they eat from the fruit, they lie to each other. They hide from God. They're afraid of God. They cover, up, they, they cover up themselves and their mistakes. Doesn't seem very good. But then their first two children, Cain and Abel, they bring sibling rivalry and murder onto the list of things for what is good and what is evil. Also, in my mind, not very good. And then the world continues to escalate. So in the very first chapters of the Bible... You see things go from bad to worse, where God floods the creation, renews it, starts over, where people still rise up in violence, still rise up to build towers to make a name for themselves rather than acknowledge that there is a creator, that he wants to do this in partnership, that freedom doesn't always mean I get to do whatever I want. It's not just a freedom to do something. It's also a freedom for something. And so when the Bible makes this turn, it makes this turn with this person named Abram or Abraham and Sarai or Sarah. And so the rest of the story is about that. And that's why the book we're reading, we've been reading in this series called Galatians, spends a lot of time talking about the descendants of Abraham because God was saying, I'm going to use your family to bring freedom, not just for you, but for the whole world. Sometimes they choose it. Often they don't. But in each of these examples, I think it's an example of the way that humans try to define what is good and what is evil. That building a tower to make a name for yourself is good. That building a city and naming it after your kid is good. That Deciding to bomb something is good. Deciding to give something is not good or is good. And Max Lucado, in his book, No Wonder They Call Him Savior, writes a beautiful picture about what this looks like in our world. 
he says that there's this group of mischievous criminals. They go into this department store, and instead of stealing anything, they actually just change all the price tags. And then they, they go out and cover up all their tracks. And the store opens the next day, and no one realizes that anything is wrong. In fact, four hours go by, and hundreds of people are going into this department store and buying things, and no one has figured out that the prices are different. Some people are walking out with the greatest deals in the world. Others feel like they've been robbed at the prices they paid for stuff. But that's exactly the world we live in. Someone has changed the price tags on what is good and what is evil. And things that are truly valuable... Honesty, integrity, and purity, they're, they're, of, they're just sold far too cheaply in our lives. And things that have no eternal value, maybe the nicest corner office or the newest car or the biggest following on social media, they're bought at the cost of someone's soul. This is the world that we live in. So what is freedom mean? Because the story of Abraham ends with the people still being in bondage. Well, God comes on the scene in Jesus, and he is the only one who resists the temptation from the devil to redefine what is good and what is evil. In fact, then he teaches God's definition of good and evil. He says, blessed are the poor because they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. And we think, what? And then he says, if you want to lead, you should serve. And we think, what? And it's good to love people who love you, but it's better to love even the people that hate you. This is what it means to have freedom. This is what freedom means, to let God define what is good and what is evil. And his, the resurrection of Jesus shows us that God's definitions are the right definitions. They are the truly good definitions. And as Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven and brings us his spirit, it's through the Holy Spirit that our lives are transformed into a way that we start to understand, not by ourselves, but in community with God's spirit, God's word, and each other to know what is good and what is evil. And so that's what I think true freedom means. It means that we are set free from all the law, but we are set free from the world's definitions of good and evil. And we're free to interact with each other about that. But more than just being set free, true freedom is something that we have to offer to someone else. True freedom is something that we need to set others free with. And it calls us to, it requires us to. If God loves the world so much, then why wouldn't I want to help someone else be set free? So sometimes that means lovingly, humbly, gently telling others the truth. That's what Galatians is talking about when it says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, caught meaning this surprised, they didn't really, maybe they didn't even know that they were sinning. 
But if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit, you who are truly godly, you should restore that person gently. Watch out so that you don't fall into the same temptation because we're all human. In our own strength, we'll all fall to temptation. But in this way, we're carrying each other's burdens. We're restoring people. We're helping them be set free. We are doing it together because we're not sure always on our own what is good and what is evil. But by God's Spirit, by His grace, and by His Word, we can know this about our own lives. So pastor and author John Ortberg says it's sort of like this. It's like taking your car to the auto mechanic and the, the technician comes out and says about your 2008, you know, Ford, whatever, and says, man, this is a fine vehicle, just spotless. You must have an amazing auto mechanic to have a car in this pristine of condition. And you walk out feeling very good after you, you know, pay for your routine checkup. But later that day, you're trying to stop at a very busy intersection and your brakes are out. And so you cause not only a pileup, but you rear-end this person. Everybody ends up being okay, but causes a lot of havoc. And so you go back to the auto mechanic, or at least I would, and you'd say, oh, thanks for that great tune-up, I think you would say, what happened? There wasn't any brake fluid in there. That's what the accident report said. Why don't you tell me there wasn't any brake fluid? And the auto mechanic might say, well, you know, I really, I didn't want you to feel bad. You didn't check your, your oil, and you didn't check your brake fluid, and and." I want this to be a place where people feel good about the cars they bring in. And your old car, it just wasn't doing well. So I wanted you to feel good about it. You'd say, I don't come to the auto body shop to, to get an ego boost. I want the truth when I go to the, to the auto body shop. Or maybe you go to the doctor's office. You go in for your routine exam and the doctor says, boy, you are a fine physical specimen, chiseled out of marble. You have the body of an Olympian. Love it. Gives you a high five, says, you know, see you in a year or two. And uh, th later that day, you're going up the stairs and you collapse. You, you find out in, in the ICU, no less, that your heart was one jelly donut away from the doors of death. You go back to the doctor, you don't give him a high five or her a high five. You say, what are you doing? I thought you said I was in great shape. Well, actually, you're like a tub of jelly. You know, there's a song about a bowl full of jelly. Like, that's sort of your body. But I didn't want you to feel bad. You know, then people don't come back to the doctor if I offend them. I want it to be a place where you feel loved and accepted. And you'd say, no way. No way. When it comes to the, my body, I want the truth. Because if something is truly important, we want the truth. We deserve the truth. We need the truth. And there have been people, especially churchgoers, throughout history that have done that badly. But if we're humble, gentle, honest, give the truth. 
So I think part of what it means to help others be set free and what does true freedom mean and require? It does set us free, but it means that we have to help others get set free. I think one of the things that that means is we have to tell people the truth. And we need to be told the truth. But I think also, it doesn't just mean telling the truth. I think it also means seeing people's invisible prisons. So the best way to describe this is got something from a friend of mine. So... I'm going to take these chairs, and then I need uh, a male volunteer here. I need an older, uh, I'll take this man right here. Uh, sorry, guys. I, th- I really thought about it. Yeah. So, Colin, I'd like you to stand, actually, on these two chairs for me. All right. There you go. And now, I would like you to, s- to describe what you see. Yeah. Um, church family. You can see people in the back, right? That's right. People serving. Doing sound. Oh, I'm all over this way. <laughs> you see any of the tops of people's heads up there? The tops of people's heads? Yeah, I don't know. You have a good perspective from there, maybe? Yep, I see lots of tops of heads, clipboards, pens. Yep. Drawing pictures, you're excited. We're like really ready to say something. <laughs> I would like to submit that what Colin has described is his worldview or his view of the world. Now we need a second volunteer. You can no no no, I need you to stay there. Sorry. <laughs> Nadia, why don't you come up? I will take this, and you can come around here, and I need you to sit okay. right there All right. with your feet under there. Actually, just pick one of the two, to <laughs> a little closer. There you go. And um, now I need, you to, I need you to step down for a second. And I need you to sit down on the floor because it's just too high there. Oh, there's not. Uh, is there? Oh, there we. Mm-hmm. Can you sit a little further down with your feet a little bit under the chair? And I. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then I need you to stand a little bit higher. I know. All right. Now, Nadia, who I really do like, I would like you to describe what you see. Well, if I, um, I, well, definitely this chair. I'm seeing a lot of the chair. I'm seeing some legs. Sorry I'm touching you. I'm seeing really good running shoes, shorts. I'm seeing some heads. Uh, I definitely see the ceiling. And I really need to strain to look around to see, well, I see Leslie smiling at me, feeling bad for me. That's, that's, pretty, much, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Now, I would also like to submit that what Nadia has described is her view of the world. So which one is right?
They're both right. I might add that they're incomplete. What is the most prominent thing in Colin's view? What is the most prominent thing in Nadia's worldview? (laughs) Now, one of my very good friends, uh, Paul, got this from Dr. Carla Dahl at um, Bethel Seminary. Uh, And Paul is African American. Paul told me, Actually, the most prominent thing in Colin's worldview is also the same as the most prominent thing in Nadia's worldview. The chair. Colin would not be able to see what he sees without that chair. Nadia would not be able to see what she sees without the chair. Now, the chair might be racism, The chair might be gender discrimination. The the chair might be ethnic um, selectivity. The chair might be age discrimination. But there are all chairs in our lives. You guys can have a seat. Thank you very much for doing that. The chairs are invisible structures that we have the opportunity to call out, that we have the opportunity to declare freedom in and for. That's maybe what Jesus was getting at when he says in Luke 4, at the start of his ministry, that he's been called to, uh, to set prisoners free, to give sight to the blind and freedom for the prisoners that there are all things in our lives that we can't see. Some of them might be systematic and institutional. Some of them might be personal and behavioral. But freedom is never just personal freedom only. It is always, always communal. It's not true freedom if it puts someone else in bondage. That's what Christ's freedom means and requires. A professor at Loyola University describes uh, one of his former African students' stories as a great example of what it means to set others free. When this student was 10 years old, um, they lived in a, this student lived in a remote part of Africa where they, had, uh, they all had family huts and they cooked in their huts. And in some of the times where it got unseasonably cool, they would also keep warm in their family huts. So as this boy was 10 and he was preparing to build a fire for the family meal, the fire quickly caught the edge of the hut and started the hut on fire right by the door. And the flames started to grow up so fast that he was now trapped inside. And as the flames started to pass or started to surround the house, he literally thought that he was going to die, and he lets out this 
blood-curdling scream that his dad hears from the other side of the village and races through the village, sees his hut on fire, and knows, just knows, that his, that his son's in there. His son's not screaming, he's passed out. He's unconscious either from fear or from smoke or from fire. But he puts a shirt over his face and he runs through the flames, scoops out his son, and rescues him. And as the boy recovers, he's unconscious for some time, but when he wakes up, he's surrounded by the women of the village. They are tending to his wounds. They have all of this food ready for him. And they're also, just a little ways away, caring for his father, who is also badly burned. And as he's about to ask about how his dad's doing, he overhears the men from the village right outside the hut. They're talking about him and about what happened and about what they need to do. And a few weeks later, as he's recovering, they take the boy. His dad is doing better, but um, still not able to, to walk really well yet. And so the men of the village, the elders, have take this boy outside the village. And outside the village in this field, he sees a hut, much like the hut of his home. And they say, now, what happened is something that we never want to have happen again. At the same time, we need fire to live. It's, it provides for our livelihood. It provides for our cooking. It's can't, it can't be something that you are afraid of. So, we want you to go into that hut, and we want you to start the fire like you started the fire in your home. And we expect it to catch the whole hut on fire. But know that the moment you scream, we will run in and we will save you. The, the entire hut will not burn down. You will not be burned. We promise you that. With utter fear, this boy does it. And they do rescue him. And as they carry them back, they say, we're going to do this tomorrow. In the meantime, though, if anyone from the village comes to visit you, we want you to tell them about your story. We want you to tell them what happened the first time, both the good and the bad, and what happened the second time, both the good and the bad. And the village elders had already instructed everyone in the village not only to visit him, but to listen without shame or condemnation. And so one by one, this boy has to tell his story again and again. But in this, he finds freedom. In this, he hears the good, not the evil. In this, he hears the, the, the salvation, the rescue, not just the, the mistake. And he does it a second time, and he does it a third time. And he tells his professor, I was saved twice. Once from the fire, and then once from the fear. Friends, this is what it means to be the church. If someone gets burned, may they be able to walk through the doors of our lives, in our, in our buildings, 
and find healing. May they be able to be heard without condemnation, without judgment, without shame. And even if they were the ones that burned themselves, may they find hope and restoration. This is what true freedom means. I'd like to transition us to communion with this poem, Restated. Instead of a healing place, or a people place, a healing place. If this is not a place where tears are understood, then where do they go to cry? And if this is not a place where their spirits can take wing, then where will they go to fly? And if this is not a place where their prisons get unlocked, then where will they go for a key? If this is not a place where I can whisper my fears, then where will I go to be free? This freedom isn't just for you and me. It's for everybody. We're going to have a moment of silence before we join into communion, and I just ask you to Ask the Spirit of God right now in your life who God is needing freedom around me. Where do I see the prisons? Where can I go to humbly, gently, honestly tell the truth? God, what can I do about it? The Spirit will move you and speak to you. So God, we pause to listen. And we thank you for your freedom.